All right. Gotta take a picture. Hang on. I don't know what to do. Am I supposed to smile? <laughs> I check like, my teeth. <laughs> there we go. That's. Let me see. No, that's terrible. Oh my god, you have to delete <laughs> okay, that. That's so that. bad. It looked like not good. Hang on. <laughs> I'm so uncomfortable <laughs> with how you're looking at me right now. <laughs> no, do that again. I gotta, I gotta no. get that. Okay, <laughs> now I can know what I think my sexy looks like. The sats get down again, 70s, 60s, starting to get a little bit nervous. Well, what's the next step from the pace plan? Eye gel's not working. Uh, it's in place, but isn't doing the thing. Surgical crank. So we perform the surgical crank. Tubes in. It's a textbook surgical crank. Sats come up a bit, but they're still like hanging out around 80. So if you have somebody with multiple symptoms of allergic reaction, don't wait before they're in shock to give epinephrine. So many people are like, well, you know, epinephrine has these side effects and I'm worried about it. Uh, like, who cares? Like, well, but they have a cardiac history. Yeah, you know what people with a cardiac history don't tolerate? Hypoxia. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke, and this is an episode in the Thinking Series. The series has been a huge hit with educators who use the episodes as enrichment material to accompany their core curriculum. And I just heard from a listener, he's in paramedic school, and he said that Dr. Pickett mentioned epsilon waves in the syncope episode, and that epsilon waves was the answer to extra credit on this listener's last test. Dr. Pickett, the white tiger, joins me again in this episode. We tucked into our recording closet, we pretended life was on pause for an hour, and we enjoyed the topic of shortness of breath. Here it is. We're going to talk about shortness of breath, but before that, this is something we're going to just start doing quarterly. I'm holding you to it. Got it. I'm here. And lots of listeners are curious why everyone around Austin's calling you the white tiger. There is a story and Don't hold this. back on the story. I want, we want details. I could give you as much as I can appropriately give you, but <laughs> this actually comes from a call that I was running. Uh, I had shown up on this call. It was a cardiac arrest. was a primary respiratory issue that turned into a cardiac arrest. So as we're... Working the patient, the paramedic in charge said, I think we need to intubate. We had an eye gel in place, but we weren't getting great entitled numbers. We weren't getting good SATs. It was a primary respiratory issue. So he said, I think we need to intubate this patient. I agreed completely trying to address this cause of the arrest. He gets up to the head of the patient and he's briefing the crew about what he wants to do, what his pace plan is, his primary alternate contingency emergency. We're going to do the King Vision. If that doesn't work, then we'll go to direct laryngoscopy. If that doesn't work, we'll go to IGEL, and then we'll go to crank if we have to. Assigning roles, and this is all super important in making this procedure successful. Patient is supine on the living room floor, and we've got CPR in progress, so we can't ramp her up the way we normally would in intubating somebody. I want to put something under her shoulders to position her a little bit better, get that ear to sternal notch, line that airway out better. We often use our pressure bags for that, the IV pressure bags, put it under the shoulders there and then just inflate it until we get it to the point where we want to do that. But we couldn't do that because the pressure bag's on the IO. So I'm looking around the room for just something that we can put up under her shoulders to boost the patient up. And so you need something of that approximate size and shape. There on the couch is this stuffed white tiger. And so I'm like, okay, fantastic. Here we go. And so I grabbed that. Now, 
Mark is still briefing the fire crew, and this is a critical patient safety process. I don't want to interrupt this communication process, getting everybody there. So I'm kneeling for probably a good 30 seconds just holding this stuffed white tiger, and the firefighters are looking at me, and they thought, like, I grew an extra head. Oh, you were just holding it. At that time, I was just holding it because I didn't want to interrupt what they're doing, this crew brief before the intubation. And they're looking at me, and just the look on their faces is just like, what? So finally, there's a break in that conversation. I think at that point, they're not even listening to him anymore. They're just wondering, who is this guy? And I'm pretty sure they thought that I actually brought the tiger with me to the call. I said... animal therapy tiger. I should have said nothing. But I said, so what I want to do is I want to put this up under the shoulders, boost her up a little bit, position a little bit better. And there's this pause, and all eight of them go... Oh, okay. Yeah, we were wondering because that was weird. (laughs) I immediately lost all credibility with Engine 16 afterwards. I told this story at CE and it just took off. Somebody left a White Tiger keychain on my truck. White Tiger memes start showing up all over the place. I'm getting photoshopped into posters of Siegfried and Roy. (laughs) It just took off. Com calls me for medical control, says, hey, I've got uh, Medic 33 on the line here looking for some orders. I'm like, yeah, go ahead with it. And she goes, Medic 33, you got White Tiger on the phone. Yes. <laughs> and so it just, it, it became this thing and it took off. And so that's how I became the White Tiger here. And now one of the academy classes gave me a scrub shirt. It's got a White Tiger embroidered on it. Mm-hmm. And it's just taken on a life of its own. And I saw a video of you. Actually, I didn't see the video, but I'm going to. But I saw a picture of you in a, what looked like maybe a Halloween costume or something with a White Tiger shirt on. I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> That was a fundraiser for our Austin Femmes, the Females in EMS. This is a group of women in EMS who have banded together and they're competing in this competition down in San Antonio called Hero Like Her. So it's a fitness competition among emergency services. So fire, police, EMS. They're the only team representing a purely EMS agency. They're training super hard for this and it's become this thing like there's four people on the team, but now it's 70 women in EMS who are all working out together and doing this. It's a wonderful thing how they're supporting each other. They've banded together for this and it's awesome. So they they held a fundraiser and they invited the guys to do a cheerleading competition to participate in this. And so, yes, I, I did an act. Uh, I proved that there are some things the White Tiger cannot do and one of them is dance. <laughs> But I I did my very best. Yes, some tiger stripes were part of the costume. And You want to talk about shortness of breath? I would love to talk about shortness of breath. Shortness of breath is a hard one because when I think of shortness of breath, I think of it being its own complaint. But then I also think of it accompanying so many other chief complaints as an associated symptom. Really, shortness of breath can be indicative of derangements of just about every body system. Obviously, something's wrong with the lungs, the heart. We know about those. But something is neurologically going wrong. It can make you short of breath or affect your respirations. If you've got liver failure and get ascites, you get short of breath. If your kidneys are failing, you get acidotic, you get short of breath. If you have hemorrhage, you get acidotic, you get short of breath. And so really, anything in the body can go wrong and cause shortness of breath, which is why that differential for that specific complaint is so broad. Right. So the natural question is, when you hear shortness of breath as the chief complaint, and you're approaching a patient, maybe it's dispatch info, or maybe it's info you get about a patient that you're going to go see in the ER, where do you start? First, 
question I got to ask myself is, do I need to act right now? Mental status is a great indicator of that. You have somebody who's unconscious or somebody who is not paying any attention to you. They're just working so hard to breathe. And that's particularly true of children. If the, the child, the toddler or preschooler is not afraid of you, then that's a problem. That's somebody who's in true distress. That means I have to assemble the team and move very quickly down that path. Versus the person who is able to speak in complete sentences or several words between breaths. They don't appear to be working that hard. I know I've got time. I have time to sit and talk with them, to build rapport, to get a more complete history before I start just laying hands all over them and throwing interventions at them. Whatever the complaint is, one thing that my old medical director in Charlotte, Dr. Tom Blackwell, instilled in me was you come up on a scene, you come up to a patient, whatever that complaint is, introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Jason, I'm a paramedic. How's your breathing right now? And asking that question and assessing that right off the bat, and then you can move on down your assessment and differential. So you ask them to qualify it. Yes. You get a lot of information if they don't answer you at all. Uh, Or if they're saying, well, if they have to sit and think about it, then okay, I know I got time. Yeah. So what do I have to do right now? Airway, the big thing, do I have to intervene with that right now? However, every, I'd say, profession has certain procedures that kind of define that profession. For paramedics, a lot of times it's intubating. For nurses, starting IVs. Those core skills that when we see ourselves in what we do, that's a thing that we do. And uh, that tends to be a thing that we default to when things are getting wicked. As you had in your episode, when things get wicked. Yeah. If you ever see a patient and you're like, oh man, they need an airway right now. I got to intubate them. And you're reaching for a laryngoscope. That is exactly the wrong patient for which you should be reaching for the laryngoscope. Because if they look that bad off, ask yourself now, if I stick a laryngoscope in their mouth, will they tolerate another 30 seconds of apnea for me to intubate them? The answer, if they're in true distress, is almost always no. Mm -hmm. And you're going to kill the patient with the intubation. That's exactly the one that you obviously want to act immediately, but you want to stave off the intubation. Throw the other things at them, the oxygen, the the BLS airways, positive pressure of CPAP or BiPAP, positioning them, et cetera, prepping them. And you may know that I'm going down the intubation pathway. You come in, the person's gray and diaphoretic, using all their accessory muscles. Yes, that person belongs on a ventilator, going to need to happen. But the instinct can't be grab the laryngoscope scope first. Instinct has to be grab all of the other things first. With the other stuff being BLS maneuvers? Primarily, yes. BLS maneuvers, CPAP, oxygen, oxygen at the appropriate rates. The 15 liters via non-rebreather is not actually 100% FiO2. We get taught this in EMT school that we put a non-rebreather on them at 15 liters per minute, then that's 100% FiO2. Okay, well, if you look at a decent tidal volume on a grown adult that's in distress. That tidal volume can be a liter or more. If I'm throwing 15 liters of on a breather and I'm short of breath and I'm breathing 30 times a minute with one liter volumes, then my minute volume is 30 liters per minute. So it's not possible for that 15 liters of on a breather to give me 100% FiO2. Crank that all the way up 
to 50 liters per minute if it's possible, or 25 at least. Throw in a second oxygen source and a high-flow nasal cannula at 15 to 25 liters, whatever I can get through that nasal cannula there. Give them that true elevated FiO2. Hey guys, popping in here for a quick second. Word has gotten out that iSimulate sponsors the podcast. And because of that, something unexpected has started happening. Medic Mindset listeners have started sending me messages about how much they love using iSimulate products. Here's one I got just last week. These are the words verbatim as they came in a text. First time proctoring National Registry, and I'm at the Dynamic Cardiology Station with iSimulate monitors. These things are badass. And she goes on, I like it that you can make it any monitor and you can actually hit the shock button at the appropriate jewel setting. I love hearing these testimonials and I love it that you've thought to send them to me because when you do, I know that we share our love of iSimulate. I'm really eager to talk to you about lung sounds because I want real talk about it. Okay. And I want to hear from you where they fit into your assessment with a patient with shortness of breath, um, when they happen, how they happen. Lung sounds early. If the patient's talking to me, then I have a moment that I can that I can take them. If they're not talking at all, then I need to start doing airway intervention first, throw some BLS airways, and maybe start bagging the patient. If it's an inspiratory sound, then it tends to be upper airway. So I'm going to gear my therapy in that direction. We're going to reduce swelling, give epi, you know, that, that kind of thing, relieve the foreign body airway obstruction. If it's an expiratory sound, then it tends to be lower airways uh, that are involved. One good piece of advice somebody gave me when I was a paramedic is ditch the crappy stethoscopes. The $2 stethoscope that's in the back of the ambulance that is disposable and you can throw away is just awful. And you get such better information by having a decent stethoscope with soft conforming earpieces that that can seal out the external noise and can really hear what's going on down in there. So for the medics that are out there, Spend the money, get a halfway decent stethoscope at least. I don't care what brand you use, if it's Welch Allen or ADC or Litman or whatever you like. I'm not uh, here to push a particular product or anything, but just spend the money to get a good stethoscope. Get in there and listen. I listen to the patient's back. That tends to be a lot closer to the lungs and unobstructed. It's also a bit less threatening to the patient when I say, I'm going to take a listen to your lung sounds right now here on your back, and you're just touching their back. Patients who've never met you before, they tend to feel that that's maybe a little bit more okay than you putting your hands all over their chest right in the beginning of that interaction with them. I see novices listening on the front. For some reason, it's some positioning thing, like they don't want to ask the patient to sit up or something. It's more neutral to, to listen on someone's back. And when I think of just my physical exam, when I go to my PCP, she's listening on my back. Yes. And you've got more lung fields to listen to now. Reading Barbara Bates, and you look there, there's like 12 different lung fields you're listening to. I don't go that way. I go with four. Too high up and too low on the back. And then on the front, I may listen to two up high, and then I go straight to the heart from there. I don't listen like at every single intercostal space. I think that's, that's not a good use of my time at that point when I'm trying to synthesize a lot of information or obtain a lot of information. Getting them to sit up. The other thing is that that cues them to take bigger, deeper breaths. Somebody who's laying back and you say, okay, I'm going to take a listen to your lung sounds now. Take a big, deep breath. They're kind of chill in that position of repose. So they're not taking that big, deep breath. Good and good, good diaphragmatic excursion. Getting air down to the lower airways where the atelectasis or the fluid may be hiding. So sitting them up, 
can give them a better diaphragmatic movement, more air movement, give you more of an opportunity to hear some of those subtler sounds or the sounds that aren't there for the entire inspiratory phase. So an inspiratory noise would be like strider? Correct. Yeah, strider is almost always a really bad sign that somebody's got a very small upper airway. The strider signal is a potentially difficult invasive airway for you. The question you have to ask yourself is, I got somebody who's strider, and if the mechanism fits, then I may need to act very, very quickly to secure the airway, even if they're like they're oxygenating and they're breathing okay right now, but we just pulled them out of a house fire. They're swelling up, and I know that 10 minutes from now, that's going to be completely swelled shut, and I'll have no choice but to perform a surgical airway. I'm not saying shy away from surgical airways. I think we shy away from surgical airways far too often. We kill a lot of patients because we're trying to intubate over and over and over again when we should have just cut the neck. You know, mm-hmm. we're told, well, it's a, it's a procedure of last resort. You know, if it's your airway failure algorithm. If you failed at intubating and all this and you're making a cut and it's bloody and it's terrifying and all that. Like, look, it's not. And if you think of it as an airway failure algorithm, what are you going to do in real life? You're going to continue to try all this other stuff because you're not going to want to admit failure. Getting past that mental gap of, okay, I guess it's time to crack the patient versus if it's just part of your pace plan and I know, okay, these are my choices that I have to manage this airway, then it makes that mental leap easier if you if you have to go there. So Strider, upper airway sound, that squeaking of the airway, were they just eating something? Now they got a foreign body that's up there and I know if I'm rough handle them a little bit too much, then that form body may then completely obstruct the airway and I'll be uh, in trouble. So Strider is one of those things that bothers me a lot. That gets me to get everything going, get the team going and get all of the stuff, get ready to aggressively, invasively manage an airway. Strider is something that scares me a little bit um, when I hear it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Twice you've mentioned the PACE plan and you have an episode about that that listeners can go find Dr. Pickett's podcast, if you haven't listened to it, is Austin Travis County Office of the Medical Director podcast. <laughs> really easy to remember. <laughs> yes. Austin Travis County EMS System Office of the Medical Director. Yeah. <laughs> <That's, yeah. laughs> I've gotten really good at saying it fast. <laughs> it took me forever. Um, but you have an episode about the, what you keep referencing, this PACE plan. Yes. This is something that I preach in our airway management here. If you go in to the airway with a plan thinking about, okay, I'm going to intubate the patient. I have my intubation stuff for this and you don't think about all these other steps, where your mind is, then if that initial intubation is unsuccessful, then you're going to be like, okay, now i got to come up with the the other plans, the other things I have to do in this. And you're having to do it on the fly, under stress. Maybe you've just sedated and paralyzed the patient, and you don't have any of that equipment set up. I find this especially when dealing with somebody with a potentially difficult airway in the emergency department, even if they don't have one I'm particularly worried about, I get the difficult airway stuff there. Get the difficult airway cart out, think through that pace plan, and it's at the bedside. So if I run into that patient with a difficult airway, then I know I've got the rest of the plan. It's there. It's ready to go. Maybe it's just warding off evil spirits, and I'm fine with that. If I do a peek and shriek and find something like a tumor in there that I know I'm not going to get past with the endotracheal tube, and I know I've got to go to cut the neck then the stuff's there. And I've already made that mental leap of thinking about, okay, what if then I may have to do this and it's not as emotionally traumatic event and therefore doesn't take me as much time to make that decision. Yeah. Do you know the name of that episode? 
so episode two and episode 16 uh, are the ones. Episode two is an airway case and why it helps to be prepared. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, that's the one where I really get into detail with the uh, so. pace plan and preparation. Good. So let's stick with Strider for a second. One of your medics recently texted me that you said this. Are you ready for what you said? Go for it. Benadryl cures itching while the patient dies of anaphylaxis. <laughs> give give them true. epi. Yeah, give epi early. So if you have somebody with multiple symptoms of allergic reaction, don't wait before they're in shock to give epinephrine. So many people are like, well, you know, epinephrine has these side effects and I'm worried about it. Uh, like, who cares? Like, well, but they have a cardiac history. Yeah, you know what people with a cardiac history don't tolerate? Hypoxia. So, in shock. They, they don't do well with that. Taking a look at somebody who's got like a full body rash and they're talking to you and they keep going, <clears throat> like that. Like, but they're moving air right now. Yeah, but they're not going to be in, in the very short future. Give the epinephrine, do that early. And this is one of those things in Strider. If I can lock down on this is an allergic phenomenon that's that's causing this, then epi right off the bat. Intramuscular epi, if they have any derangement or perfusion. So if they're in shock at all, poor blood pressure, or just poor peripheral pulses, then I am doing the IM epi, but also an epinephrine infusion will be the next step, getting it in IV because I know it's going to be going where I want it to go. Mm -hmm. If the patient's in shock, they may not be absorbing that epi as efficiently, and so it may take a little bit more time if it's intramuscular. But mm -hmm. now I would never delay intramuscular epinephrine for the sake of getting an IV to do IV epinephrine. Mm -hmm. I think that IM epi is a great bridge to an epi drip. But yeah, if they're, if they're sick, they've got strider and they've got like an allergic reaction, like, oh, she's allergic to peanuts. Like, like I, I don't care. I'm not going to wait for them to, for the map to be 50 before I say, mm -hmm. well, I guess I can give some epi. I'm mm -hmm. hitting them right off the bat. And then the Benadryl as well. No, I don't care about the Benadryl. You don't? <laughs> I don't. I don't. The only thing the Benadryl does is cure the itching. That's okay. That's good. That's important. That's patient comfort. So many people go to Benadryl because they're afraid to do epinephrine in a serious allergic reaction. I'm not saying either or. I'm saying in addition to, sure, the itching that goes with histamine is unpleasant, but is the swelling in the airway related to histamine? It can be, but the Benadryl is not going to resolve that. Okay. It's not going to fix that anytime soon. Unfortunately, what happens is folks are like, oh, I don't know if I want to give epi. Well, I can give Benadryl. You know, it's kind of a halfway step. I see. If you've got somebody who's sick with anaphylaxis, if they have any concern about airway management, strider, difficulty breathing, repeatedly clearing their throat, or just saying, I feel like my throat is closing, you've bought your epinephrine. Mm -hmm. And then give Benadryl also. Yeah, then give Benadryl and Solumedrol <laughs> and all that, that kind of stuff. I hear what you're saying, though, because you're actually talking about mindset. You're saying you really want to de-emphasize the Benadryl so people don't use it as a, let's try this, maybe it will help, and then wait. Exactly. You're wasting precious time that the patient needs that other stuff on board. And as we're finding now, more and more specialty societies are saying, well, not 0.3, go with 0.5 or mm. 0.7 or even a milligram intramuscularly. Mm. Um, disclaimer. If it's not in your clinical guidelines, get an online medical control order for it. If you don't work for our system, then I really don't care what you do. But if you're standing tall before your medical director, don't blame me because you heard something on Ginger's podcast. So let's work our way down the lungs. You want to do wheezing or ronchi next? Let's talk about wheezing first off. So strider is upper airway. Everything else is lower airway. A strider is a physical obstruction. What am I thinking Inhaled epinephrine, intramuscular epinephrine, surgical airway, 
going into the laryngoscope and a pair of McGill's and pulling out the piece of sausage or whatever that's occluding the airway, something like that. If it's lower airway, then I'm thinking the other stuff, the albuterol, you know, whatever bronchodilators you want or fixing whatever those underlying issues are. So wheezing is, it's deceptive sometimes because the people who have really bad bronchospasm don't have any wheezing because they're not moving in the air at all. Right. That's a scary patient. That's mm-hmm. a patient that we need to act on fairly quickly. You're giving bronchodilators, but if they're not moving in the air, how much of that bronchodilators actually getting down into those tissues? Well, what am I back to now? Intramuscular epinephrine. The wheezing with its inspiratory or expiratory or both. Expiratory is kind of the typical, but then you get somebody who's really bad off that can be squeaking both directions. The level of wheezing is not so much what worries me. And here's somebody that's got wheezing everywhere, but their respiratory effort is, a, is good. They're not in distress. They're not diaphoretic. They're not scary in that way. And now we've got time to, to work with them. The person who's got a little bit of wheezing, but they're in clear distress, then maybe we're just not hearing any sounds at all. Yeah. We're going to need to act right now to fix them. Not all that wheezes is asthma. In fact, most isn't. But the asthma patient that tells me that they've spent time in the ICU for their asthma before, or they've been intubated for their asthma before, that's a big issue. Usually if they've been intubated, they are somewhat aware of what that term means. But just in being able to effectively communicate with our patients, I ask them, have you ever been in the intensive care unit for your asthma before? Or have you ever been admitted overnight to a hospital for your asthma before? If I get a yes to either of those questions, that is somebody who has a potential for serious deterioration, and I'm going to be very aggressive so I wanna, uh, with managing I want to hover here for a second. Because sometimes I'll give them a scenario within what I've called status asthmaticus. I don't know if that's still the term that we should use. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're giving all these meds and they're doing all these things and the patient just doesn't get better quickly. And it's distressing to them. And then I tell them, like, nope, sometimes people die from asthma. I looked it up on the CDC. These are numbers from 2007. But it said on their website, 185 children and 3,262 adults died from asthma in that year. Which asthma patients are you worried about that may go into respiratory arrest or cardiac arrest? What are they doing that make you most worried about them? The big predictor is is history. Have they ever been in the ICU? That is the most accurate predictor of somebody that can really go downhill on you. The patients who are suffering from severe asthma typically look like everybody else who's suffering from any severe shortness of breath. The tripod positioning, that leaning forward. So they sit up, lean forward, so they get that maximum chest depth. Chin is jutted forward, and that's just sort of an instinctive thing to open the upper airway. Accessory muscle use is uh, a big one. Retractions, intercostal, subcostal, uh, supraclavicular, suprasternal retractions. Now, asthma tends to be more of an issue of getting air out rather than getting air in. But you'll still get those retractions because they're breathing so hard that they're trying to pull the air in real quick and then exhale it. And a lot of the times they're breath stacking because they're breathing so fast and they're not able to get all that stuff out. And so that pressure in the chest is going up and going up and going up. And what does that lead to? That leads to shock because now their chest, the pressure gets so high, the preload, the blood coming back to the heart, it can't come back as efficiently because it's fighting all that pressure and their blood pressure drops. And that's somebody who's in pretty severe, bad shape. Meds can be a clue for you as well. 
the person who says, oh, yeah, I've got asthma, but all they've got is uh, an albuterol inhaler and they're following with a physician. That's the other problem is getting into a physician, folks without insurance, not able to afford medications. But usually our more severe asthmatics are taking drugs like Montelukast or Singulair. They're taking inhaled steroids, inhaled long acting bronchodilators like Fomiterol and the, the inhaled budesonide or fluticasone or something like that. They're taking those things on a daily basis. And one question you, you can ask him, if the patient's in condition for you to ask him, is how often during the week do you have to use your inhaler? If they say, I have to use my inhaler every single day, one, they're probably undertreated with the other stuff that they could be treated with, or if they are compliant with all of those things, this is somebody who has a potential for really severe deterioration. It sounded like you said most wheezing is not asthma, in fact. Most is COPD, uh-huh. in this day and age with smokers. Mm, and and yeah. uh, you can have some asthmatic bronchitis. So you, you get a bad case of bronchitis and get some wheezing. Yeah. If you get a kid that is under the age of two and it's September to April, then it's RSV. There's cardiac asthma. If you have the heart failing for whatever reason and you get some fluid back up, then you can get wheezing. And some of that is reactive airway disease. So the lung tissue is like, hey, I'm getting all this fluid in here and get this sort of reactive bronchospasm as a result. Or you can be getting interstitial edema in the lungs that also narrows their airways and causes some asthma. So it illustrates the importance of getting a good history, a good medical history, trying to eke out some of those differentials. You may not be able to. It mm-hmm. may not be able to differentiate the cardiac asthma versus just pure bronchospasm. You may not be able to differentiate the congestive heart failure from the pneumonia. Which I want to talk about. I because I think the cardiac wheezing versus pure asthma, bronchoconstriction wheezing, that differentials more straightforward than the pneumonia versus congestive heart failure. Lung sounds and just the overall presentation, sometimes it's both. That challenging differential is why we don't see aggressive treatment of congestive heart failure with diuretics or anything in the, in the field because we're, we're worried that maybe it is pneumonia. So there was a 2007 study that looked at Lasix use or furosemide use in the field. What they found was that half of the patients who were given furosemide, which is a diuretic, did not have CHF. And 17% of them had pneumonia. Now, if you have pneumonia, getting rid of intravascular volume is potentially harmful to you. So not only were we not helping half the people that we were giving it to, but we're potentially harming 17% of them. And that's why you saw EMS agencies getting away from giving Lasix in the field. It might hurt the patient and Mm -hmm. may not help them at all. Why am I doing this? Yeah. I think that's because the clinical differential is so tough, and maybe in hospital you're relying more on blood labs or something else. Even in hospital, it's so difficult to differentiate those two. The patient comes in, you, you've got some labs, you've got a chest x-ray. If you've got bilateral pneumonias, then that can look like pulmonary edema. Likewise, you can get some focal consolidations and focal edema that looks like, oh, there's this lobe hmm. is kind of whited out, and, and that's a pneumonia. It's that whole clinical picture. Do they have a white count? What mm-hmm. is the B-type natriuretic peptide mm-hmm. number? What does that look like? And it's elevated, but they have CHF. So how, how elevated is it? Even physicians, after an extensive workup of the patient in the emergency department with lab work and x-ray and ultrasound and all that, sometimes we just don't know. Because it's so often it can be both. Yeah, absolutely can. And that makes us sometimes also hesitant 
to go that direction of the aggressive fluid management of a patient with pneumonia. So, like, well, it's a little lady. She's got a history of CHF. And she's floridly septic with a crappy blood pressure and uh. and tachycardic and all this. Like, what? Well, We'll give her a 250 bolus. Like, it's not going to be enough. <laughs> that just is not going to work. But the CHF scares us off from giving mm-hmm. the the decent fluid bolus in those septic patients that really do need it. And it shouldn't. Bronchi, I call it a lung snore. A lung snore? <laughs> and you can help me. This is what I understand it to be. It's secretions in the larger airways. And I associate it with bronchitis or asthma can have bronchi if you get some secretions associated with it. Some of the mucus that comes with mm-hmm. uh, asthma, they tend to be hypersecretors. Mm-hmm. Some of that mucus tends to be very thick, too, and that can be problems for them to move up and mm-hmm. get more air trapping and can be problematic. And I think of it as being um, maybe on inspiration and expiration. Help me with wrong It can be either. You're exactly right. It's some fluid or material in the, not in the alveoli, but uh, in some of those larger airways and stuff's moving around. I, I usually say uh, they coarse or fine crackles yeah and so then that that leaves very little question in the reader's mind when they read my chart later on the, the admitting physician reads so it's coarse crackles ronchi yes coarse yeah. crackles ronchi those are synonymous mm-hmm. yeah i mean at least, in it, my brain at least they, they are, are to me and and yeah so fine crackles are rails so fine crackles are rails, and the best way to train your brain what they sound like just pinch some of your hair between the fingers and rub it together there you go. That's the little alveoli popping open, closing, mm-hmm. popping open, closing. They're very, very tiny ones. Now, if you have emphysema They're very tiny. and you have bigger ones because uh, the COPD and you've broken down those alveolar walls and so forth, then those sounds can be coarser. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, you want to do a scenario? Let's do it. It's a trauma scenario. It's one that I gave to our last semester students. The patient was trimming limbs in a large oak tree. The oak tree part's not important. Okay. Um, it's not a cedar tree? <laughs> It's, well, it's not a maple. Mm-mm. It's oak. It, it's a it's oak. Got to check. <laughs> he fell and landed on pavers. Okay. Maybe a one to two story fall. We don't know because mm-hmm. we don't we don't really know where he was when it happened. But when you find him, his GCS is three. He has a depressed skull fracture. Vital signs that go along with increasing ICP. You got a picture on this guy. You got a visual. I can do all the things. Yeah, uh, I can. I can see this patient right now. Somebody throws on a pulse ox and tells you the SATs are 80%. This is just as you walk up. What are your initial thoughts on why SATs are low? And what are your first steps? I walk up. One, he's unresponsive. So I know that uh, securing the airway in some way is going to be necessary and possibly assisting ventilations. Two, he's hypoxic. So I know I have to act immediately. So my first thought, he's hypoxic and unresponsive is he's not breathing. Get an oral or nasal airway in him, start assisting ventilations with a bag valve mask. For the person that has a bad head injury, I know we keep teaching EMTs, don't stick a nasal airway in there because he might have a basal skull fracture and that'd be really bad for him. Hey, look, if you got a bad enough basal skull fracture to admit a nasopharyngeal airway into the cranial vault, that injury is not survivable. It just it just isn't. They're they're dead. I don't think there are any cases of it happening. No, there's everybody's seen the one X-ray of the tiny MG tube that's tube, curled yeah. up in there, but that's a, a, a completely different thing. A totally different bore to that tube. Unfortunately, that got moved over to this NPA thing. So, what if the guy's jaw is clenched? What are you going to do? Take a nasal airway in him. That's fine. Nasal airway in him. Start bagging him. Yeah, get your O's on him. But just the ventilation itself should see some improvement in that oxygen saturation. All this stuff is BLS. Don't reach for the laryngoscope like, oh man, sats or 80s. Let me stick a tube in the throat. No, 
don't get too ALS too quickly on, on there because you might bag him a little bit, get him sats up to 98, and then you've got the time to prep RSI him, get the tube in. And I think that's where the students go with it too. They think, okay, unresponsive guys, maybe laying on his back, just not either breathing or breathing well. So airway positioning, just managing the airway and assisting ventilations. But I just keep doing the thing where like, okay, you're bagging. You've got the OPA in or the MPA. You've got oxygen flowing in the sets come up to maybe 90%, but you just can't seem to get them above that. What are next steps? So the elephant in that room is a pneumothorax. Something for us to remember is that a simple pneumothorax is not a big deal. A tension pneumothorax is not an oxygenation problem. It is a hemodynamic problem. It creates hypotension and shock. Not as often does it create significant hypoxia and to, you know, the whole thing, you get the whole milieu of everything all at once. But the other thing to remember is that if you're spontaneously breathing, your chances of developing a tension pneumothorax are tiny. Really just doesn't tend to happen to somebody who's spontaneously breathing. Once we start positive pressure ventilating them though, that's when the simple pneumothorax unmasks itself as a tension pneumothorax and can throw you for a loop like, oh, you're bagging me, was fine, and now he's going to shock and doing all this kind of stuff, and now oh, he's got a pneumo, but well, the lung sounds were okay, or they, you know, he was backing okay earlier, and that's why we start pushing air into him, we push air into that pleural space, and then we have to act on that. If we go back to this patient, he's unresponsive, he's 80%, get a nasal airway in him, get some flush rate oxygen through a bag valve mask, assist the ventilations appropriately. How is he to bag? How am I feeling? Is it easy to bag? Am I getting good chest rise? Am I being overly aggressive? I don't want to be overly aggressive with the volumes. Our bag valve masks, so, so many of them, the bag has a volume of like a liter and a half. That's a ridiculous volume for any patient that you're assisting. They need like 500. So I don't want to overventilate, cause more barotrauma. Then ask, question the data too. Always question the data if you get a reading of some kind, an instrument reading that doesn't fit with what you expect, or it, it conflicts with other data that you have, check and make sure. So if you got the pulse ox on, am I getting a good waveform, good pleth? If it's not a pulse ox that has that, maybe it's just one of the known fingertip pulse ox that has a, a flashing LED, that LED gives you the quality of the data it's getting. So if it's flashing green, then it's probably pretty reliable. If the heart rate is corresponding with the radio pulse, then it's probably pretty reliable. Mm-hmm. If it's flashing yellow or red, then that data is not as reliable. You have to sort of synthesize the whole, okay, can I trust this real quick? But just real quick, is that working? Okay, good. Now we're uh, we're bagging, but the SATs won't, uh, won't come up much above 90. Then pulmonary contusion is, is going to be a significant concern. Usually pulmonary contusion doesn't make them hypoxic immediately. It, it's, it progresses after they fluid shift a good bit and the more fluid gets in the lungs. Then it becomes a problem for ventilation. But we don't tend to see the pulmonary contusion be a big problem for ventilation early on in the care of that patient, like at the point of injury. So, Yeah. So this is just a thought experiment. And I love hearing your thoughts and how you would troubleshoot that, right? You're thinking about Basically, you're just going down the pulmonary tree. It's like, okay, are we getting, is the airway opening? Is the air getting in? Are we ventilating the tree? Is the pleural space doing its thing? And then at the alveolar level, at the gas exchange level, is there a contusion or blood or something obstructing gas exchange? And then the instrument, perhaps not reading well. Are there any other things that you think? And this is just thought experiment. I was just forcing them to think, 
okay, still, you know, you hear lung sounds, everything's aerated, great pleth wave, can't find any trauma to the chest. Where does your brain go to think, like, why can't I get these sats to budge? From there, I think perfusion. So are we perfusing the... Uh, are, we, are we perfusing the pulse ox probe well enough uh, to get reliable data? And uh, also think about, are we moving air well enough? The, as you say, are we ventilating the tree uh, well enough with that? Now, hopefully you didn't get stung by a bee, get anaphylactic and fall off the ladder by the oak tree. That's just a bad day, man. It's, clearly God hates you and wants you <laughs> off this earth, if that's the case, that he <laughs> sent hornets after you and gravity. But it happens. Uh, that factors into that consideration i'll give you another scenario that uh, that i was in we have a patient takes a fall with a serious isolated head injury he's standing up about two feet off the ground falls backwards right onto his head according to the witnesses just whack straight on the back of his head without protecting himself at all he's unresponsive when the paramedics first get to him and they move him from with this, where this happened was a mass, ga- mass gathering event. Move him to the ambulance. Blood pressure is 190 over 110. Heart rate is 40. He's got raccoon eyes, jaws clenched. Clearly, severe brain injury, severe intracranial injury. I know that we're going to have to manage the airway. At that moment, he's oxygenating okay with high flow. He's maintaining that. But I know that we've got a significant transport to get to the hospital. Not having the airway managed, if he goes south during the transport, then we're going to have a problem. The other thing is that hypercarbia or hypocarbia are both really bad for head injuries. Hypoxia is really bad for head injuries. They have linear relationships between those problems and bad outcomes. This is somebody that is going to need the airway managed. We've got the people. Okay, great. We set everything up, position him, ramped, ear to sternal notch, medicate got the high-flow nasal cannula, got the bag valve, all this, satting 98, 99%. We paralyze him and, and sedate him, and we start the countdown as we're, as we're ventilating him. His sats start dropping, 98, 97, 96, 98. And they're dropping. We're making sure that we've got good air movement. He's not particularly difficult to bag. We're getting some chest movement. He's a bigger, thicker, kind of brawny dude. The sats are dropping. Well, this is... Maybe getting a problem, but we're not seeing an obvious airway issue here. Sats hit 90, and that's our bailout point. We're okay, his sats are 90. I'm not going to subject him to more apnea to place a tube and somebody I think might be a difficult airway. We move down the pace plan to an eye gel. Drop the eye gel in, got an okay waveform on the end title with that. Sats continue to drop. And we're bagging like, okay, it's easy to bag. We're troubleshooting everything. We're troubleshooting the lines to the oxygen, making sure the oxygen's flowing. Trust but verify, right? Just verifying everything is is working and so forth. And again, it's not matching what we what we thought. So the sats get down again, seventies, sixties, starting to get a little bit nervous. Well, what's the next step from the pace plan? Eye gel's not working. Uh, it's in place, but isn't doing the thing. Surgical crank. So we perform the surgical crank. Tubes in. It's a textbook surgical crank. Everything's working great. Sats come up a bit, but they're still like hanging out around 80. They're not coming up. He's got great lung sounds, perfect entitled CO2 waveform. Uh, it's positioned appropriately. It's, it's looking pretty good, but the sats are still kind of crappy. And I'm like, man, this is, this is not making sense. Again, trace all the oxygen lines. Hopefully somebody didn't fill the oxygen tank with room air or something, which I don't think would be very easy to do. Then, okay, what else is going on? Throw the ultrasound on him tension pneumothorax. He had a pneumothorax that 
was invisible because he didn't see any injuries on his back and his ribs or anything like that. It was invisible when he was breathing on his own. When we started positive pressure ventilation, that's when it unmasked himself. So we vented his chest and his sats came up. So the lung sounds couldn't guide that? Not really. Lung sounds are really very unreliable in diagnosing attention to pneumothorax. Even among physicians, it's only about 68% sensitive. Ugh, the, I hate that. Yeah, it's, it's just not a thing. If you've got somebody that is showing you a clinical picture of attention pneumothorax, they're getting harder to ventilate, they've got unilateral chest movement, you're seeing like some lack of movement on one side because it's kind of full of air. If you're seeing increasing heart rate, decreasing blood pressure, that kind of thing in the right clinical setting, you're like, yeah, but they got lung sounds. Who cares? Vent the chest. Get a hole in that chest. Because ultimately, you if you needle them right, then you're not going to do a whole lot of damage. If you needle them wrong, you could. But if you do a finger thoracostomy, then it's just a soft tissue injury and not a big deal if you're ventilating them. And you had ultrasound to help you feel really confident about the decision. I had ultrasound that showed me the disease that I had not considered at that point. <laughs> yeah. So the ultrasound won't tell you if it's tension or not. The ultrasound just tells you if there's pneumo. Yeah. But in the right setting, in this in this particular case with like, wow, we're ventilating just great. And yet hypoxic, vented the chest and, it, and Ultrasound shows the pneumothorax. All right, it's tension pneumothorax. We'll vent the chest. I know that goes against what I just said, is, which is a tension pneumo is more of a hemodynamic problem than a ventilation problem. But in this case, it was a ventilation issue. I mean, essentially, this is a patient with an advanced airway who was deteriorating. And so the dope mnemonic actually elucidates that if you use it. Yeah, absolutely. That's an essential thing that whenever things start going south in your intubated patient, then displacement, obstruction, pneumothorax, equipment failure. So we, we worked through displacement. Okay, we've, it looks like it's in good place. We've got a great end tidal waveform. Obstruction doesn't look that way. He's ventilating pretty readily there, doesn't have any secretions of blood or anything like that. And we skipped over, went to equipment failure and traced all that stuff because I didn't initially have a reason to suspect the pneumothorax. Mm-hmm. I had that happen to me once in ICU, though. Guy who had a trach was about to be discharged, and I got called for some runs of PSVT. And I come in to see the guy, and he's just having these self-terminating runs of PSVT. So I ordered 12 lead to get some lab work, and it's the middle of the night in the ICU. The guy's been in for two weeks. He's got chest tubes on both sides that were actually due to be pulled out. I kind of wrote pneumothorax off on, on that, and, but he's struggling more. And then he breaks out of a sweat. He's got a, an art line in and he's got a thigh cuff on for blood pressure. And they're giving me wildly different readings for blood pressure. And the art line, the waveform doesn't look very good. And so I'm trying to place another art line so we can just get some good information. And we're starting to collect more people. He's got high pressure alarms on the vent. So the RTs are coming in they're troubleshooting that. And the nurses are coming in. We're, we see that this guy is spiraling down. We just don't know why. Chest x-ray gets shot. We're doing this stuff, and then he codes. Five minutes into the code, they say, hey, your chest x-ray's up. Tension pneumothorax. Chest tube on the one side, the radiopaque line has an obvious sudden sharp turn. So it was kinked. Really didn't even need to be in there in the first place, but he was a tracheostomy-dependent patient, high vent alarms. That was a good lesson for me, that if you are got high vent pressures, there's a very short list of things mm-hmm. that cause that. So that was a lesson learned in that uh, in that particular case. I just saw an awake patient who had bilateral pneumos and he was yelling, I can't breathe. Mm-hmm. 
can't breathe. And I've heard medics say this saying, and I think they say it to reassure themselves. I think it's they're trying to calm themselves down, but they'll say, well, if you're saying you can't breathe, you're breathing. Yeah, and I, I think that that's really lame, honestly. Uh, you can't you can't say, you say, I can't breathe. You, you judge the remainder of their behavior uh, with that because you absolutely can say, I can't breathe as your respiratory distress is spiraling down. And I've seen people that did that that said, I can't breathe mm-hmm. right before they coded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's twice I've seen it. Yeah. And that just because they say, I can't breathe, then you can breathe. No. If you say, I can't breathe, it means you have a patent airway. But there's a lot of other stuff in the respiratory system that you need to troubleshoot at that point to, uh, to figure out what's going on with the patient. I think the reason medics adopt that saying is not because they're callous jerks. I think it's because it's really distressing to listen to someone saying that over and over. You're knowing, like, I'm not helping them. Like, they're, they're basically crying out for help. And it's scary. Yeah, I, I think that that is very unsettling when, when somebody's telling you that mm-hmm. for whatever reason. The trauma patient who's going into worsening shock and their feelings they can't breathe. And, and, you know, you're going down a path that there's only so much I can do to interrupt this path shy of blood transfusion and surgery. I got a question in the Medic Mindset Facebook group when I told them I was going to talk to you about uh, shortness of breath. The question was, why do patients need to be alert and follow directions for EMS to utilize CPAP when other people use CPAP while they sleep? So the person who's using CPAP while they sleep is not in distress. <laughs> the, <laughs> the person who's got a respiratory issue that you want to put non-invasive ventilation on, remember their level of consciousness, if it is depressed, it is depressed because they are hypercarbic or hypoxic. And their ability to control that airway is much less rather than just somebody who's sleeping with their nasal CPAP on or whatever. So a person who is sleepy and you're trying to work through that shorter breath, if their CO2 is 90 mm-hmm. or whatever, then that's going to impair their ability to protect their airway and, and also breathe adequately. The other thing to consider is central hypopnea so a narcotic overdose or something like that, then they're not taking the breaths. They, they don't have the effort necessary to really take full advantage of the CPAP. I think non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is awesome. And there is a study that they did in Fort Worth. So they're using CPAP about a thousand times a year, three times a day or so. And they estimated that it saved about 30% of patients from getting intubated. So those are patients who would have been intubated otherwise without the CPAP. Now, the rest of them either didn't need intubation at all, and they would have been just fine without it, or they were going to get intubated no matter what you did. 300 people they prevented from getting intubated by use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Putting that together with the difference in cost between an intubated patient and a non-intubated patient in the hospital is about $100,000. So by using CPAP aggressively in the field, they saved the healthcare system like $30 million a year by doing that. So it's it's a great tool, especially if you really know what you're doing. I do see some patients that come in and I'm like, oh, man, we're going to be intubating this dude. And the respiratory therapist says, you know what, give me a few minutes to work with him. Uh, mm-hmm. And give me a few minutes with BiPAP and give some treatments and, and let me do some stuff. Let me do some magic here. I'll bet we can turn this one around. And more often than not, they're right. Now, there's some interventions uh, I want to talk about yeah. when it comes to 
I'm short as a breath. Like okay. what works fast? What doesn't work fast? Okay. What doesn't work at all? <laughs> okay. So, um, what works fast? Oxygen works fast. Basic airway maneuvers, BVM ventilation works fast. CPAP, BiPAP works fast. Bronchodilators, inhaled bronchodilators work fast. Uh, epinephrine, intramuscular or IV or nebulized uh, works pretty fast. Um, what doesn't work quite as fast? Steroids don't work fast. So we, we give them in the field because it does shorten ED length of stay for asthmatic patients. It's good to get people on the road to recovery, but don't expect that, well, I give this all your med draw. You should be feeling better now. No, that's not going to happen. What um, works kind of fast, mag sulfate, uh, that works uh, pretty fast, and that's really harmless. Like, you're not going to hurt anybody with bronchospasm by giving them two grams of IV mag. They're going to be fine. Let me ask you this. I could give you mag right now. Like, what, the whole time we've been sitting here, mm-hmm. two grams? Yeah. Like a little infusion of it? Uh, how would that affect you? It wouldn't. Uh, it is a smooth muscle relaxant, and so that's where we think it works in the respiratory distress patient. But magnesium has been studied for like every disease process: <laughs> headaches, you know, you name it, cardiac arrest, acute MIs. It's it's been studied in everything. But it really is a very benign intervention at the doses that we're giving at two grams. When you get up around six grams, yeah, you can get hypermagnesemic, and that can be a problem. But for two grams, not not really going to do much of anything to me. But if I'm an asthmatic patient, if I have significant bronchospasm, there's very good evidence that the moderate to severe bronchospasm, that it is beneficial both in adults and children. So mm-hmm. mag is something I like to throw on fairly early uh, in there. It doesn't go ahead of epi, but it goes pretty shortly thereafter. It goes before the steroids uh, mm-hmm. in that case. You know what else doesn't work quite fast? Intubation. And I say that because we think of it We're in terms about for of... for asthma or for everything? For anything. Okay. Uh, it doesn't work very fast. Why? Not because putting a tube in somebody and ventilating them through it doesn't work very fast. It does. But it's all of the necessary preparation to get to that step. We look at somebody, we say, okay, I need to fix this. Have learning scope, have tube, jump at it. And that's not conducive to success with the intubation. We find in critical care environments, ER, ICU, OR, PACU, those kinds of settings, that it takes on average six to seven minutes to secure a definitive airway. And that's why I say it doesn't work fast, because in order to do the preparation and everything, that is going to take you some time to do. This is also why when folks are like, well, we got short transport time, let's just take them to the hospital. They're three minutes away. Okay, if you've got a patient that has no airway, like, well, it's only three minutes. Okay, that's not so bad, but it's six to seven minutes for them to get the patient intubated, and mm-hmm. that's absent any other intervening issues like unloading the patient and uh, traffic or anything like that. So you're three minutes away from the hospital without an airway means that patient is at least 10 minutes from a definitive airway. Mm -hmm. And that's why we need to act in the field on it. But if I have that feeling like, crap, I got to do something right now, intubation isn't it. Uh, And then you got the things Mm -hmm. that that don't work for airway stuff. Um, Alkalinizing people with bicarb. in fact, if you have somebody who's acidotic, you alkalinize them, then what happens? They produce more CO2. So that's not terribly effective at, at fixing somebody's respirations. You know what else doesn't work for that? Benadryl <laughs> doesn't work <laughs> for getting their respirations better. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it a lot because you touched on a topic that's been discussed by Foam Frat recently about you know how long 
It's like a decision tree about how far away are we from the hospital and should that guide any decisions. And I think the author was making the um, argument that particularly like with this example of intubation, that really proximity to the hospital doesn't play into it. No, it doesn't. And we've seen this where medics have abandoned an intubation attempt because they landed on the pad at the hospital or failed to confirm the tube and then walked into the hospital with a tube that's not in the trachea because they didn't take all of those steps because they felt like, oh, oh, we're here at the hospital. Okay, let's just bring him in. And it's that that hot potato phenomenon of I've got to hand off this patient to somebody else. If you're in the middle of a critical procedure, then don't stop. I don't care if you're on the back pad of the hospital. I know the nurses and the docs are banging on the door like, bring him in because we want to do the cool stuff. But really that that is not the time to interrupt that whole process Mm -hmm. that you've developed at at critical airway management. I mean, I don't care if I can see the hospital from here. If you don't have an airway right here, then by the time they get it worked out, it's going to be a moot point. This patient I was telling you about with the bilateral pneumos, the medic had darted and they darted in route on the way to the hospital. I mean, we heard the radio report and they were four minutes out and after the radio report, but before they arrived, they had within those four minutes, made the decision to dart because that's what needed to be done. They didn't wait. Absolutely. No reason to. Absolutely no reason to. Even if it takes a little bit of extra time to, we're on the back pad, and I know it's trauma patient, they're messed up, but a mid-intubation attempt, and I've got a tube in, I'm not going to bring him in with a tube unsecured. I'm not going to bring him in without an entitled CO2. I'm not going to not do those things. Now, I'm not going to do the other stuff that's less important right now. Like, they don't need an OD tube right now, but... Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as that tube is concerned, I'm not going to abandon it just because of physical location. Yeah. If they need it, they need it now. Any parting remarks about shortness of breath? I like your overall concept that it is often respiratory, but that every single body system, neuro, endocrine, all of these can create shortness of breath. When the body's in distress, it gets nauseated, and then when it's really in distress, you get shorter breath. So uh, to definitely keep an open mind and open differential, there are metabolic, toxic, cardiac, pulmonary, mechanical causes of shortness of breath, and it's all over there. But you can work through those problems pretty quickly. I don't want people to feel overwhelmed by shortness of breath. Uh, Start in a methodical fashion airway first of a, do I have to act on this sort of, sort of thing and then kind of work your way further down into the lungs and then consider the other stuff get the 12 lead and uh, get the ultrasound and look at their belly and look at their effort and all that, uh, all that stuff good you gotta go do CE we're gonna go do CE yeah uh, so so you have to go teach right now I do uh-huh. how long uh, about an hour and a half thank you for your time Awesome to see you. And uh, so, yeah, I guess we'll do another one next quarter. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm holding you to it. Sweet. <laughs> Can't wait. White Tiger out. Bye. Every episode of the Thinking Series features cover art made by a medic. This time, the medic's name is Paul Turnquist. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at LifePackPaul. I sent him the topic of shortness of breath and no other instructions. Check out the art at medicmindset.com. I think you'll relate to his depiction of shortness of breath. He said it represents how he feels on bad respiratory calls.